I can always tell when I'm losing the battle of pride, when a guy cuts me off on the freeway, I get angry at him because what? He is daring to come into my lane. See, this lane belongs to me. And it's funny, you can always tell when you're the center of a universe because you define a maniac as a guy who's behind you and is driving one mile an hour faster than you. And you define a moron as a guy who's in front of you driving one mile an hour slower than you. So that's how you know if you have a problem with pride. You've kind of set yourself at the center of the universe. I want to share with you a couple of Proverbs that helps us understand what, what pride looks like. Proverbs twelve fifteen says this, and I want you to capture this. The way of the fool, and by the way, the fool in Proverbs, as you look at it, it's very clear that pride is what he has in mind when he talks about the fool. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. In other words, no matter what you say to them, no matter how wrong they are in their own eyes, they will consider themselves right. And these folks are the most exasperating people to talk to. You'll give them a, a suggestion. Uh, oh, yes, I do that. Give them another. Oh, yeah, I learned that too. Yeah. Oh, yes, I do that. And so everything you try to help them in building their life, of course, they're already doing it perfectly, but their life's a mess. So what, what's wrong with this picture? And so before this person can ever help, ever, ever receive help, something has to happen in their life that they realize there's something wrong with me. Now, that just goes against our whole self-esteem generation, doesn't it? We, we don't ever want to tell people they're wrong. We don't ever want people to, to feel bad about what they're doing. But what the proverb says is the way of the fool to always write in his own eyes. And as we move forward, I want you to kind of ask yourself a question. When's the last time in something that mattered that you said, you know what? I was wrong. I was wrong. By the way, no nudging allowed if you're a couple here, so... <clears throat> Because this is really directed at you. Interesting, verse 18 of chapter 16. <laughs> pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit before a fall. So pride breaks down everything it touches. It destroys everything that it touches. If, if you're in a marriage that is, is degenerating, I would dare say that at the foundation of your problem, we're going to see pride there. Let's go on. First John tells us about pride being a part of the world. He says, do not love the world. Don't love the things that are in the world. For, for if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now look at this. For all that is in the world, and there are three characteristics of the world, the lust or the desires of the flesh. Now there's a whole problem of sensuality and immorality and fleshly desires and pornography, all of those kind of things the desires of the eyes, the things that capture us through our eye gate, the things like, like beautiful cars and homes and dresses and, and televisions and all of those things that we go, oh, I got to have that because it looks so cool. And then he says, and the pride of life. We actually love pride in this world. 
We love basketball players who proclaim themselves the king. We love football players who prance around like peacocks after they've made a tackle. (laughs) Have you ever noticed that football players, they actually run away from their own team because they want all the attention on themselves. They want everybody looking at them because they're like four-year-olds. I did a good thing, mommy. That's pride. And here's what I want you to understand. And this is what this kind of the starting point for the morning. If you have a problem with pride, everyone around it knows knows it, but you. All right? If you have a pro, a problem with pride, you don't know it. Why do I say that? Because the way of the fool is right in his own eyes. So if, if you tend to think, oh, if my wife would just get her act together, if my husband would just get his act together, if we could just get that person fixed, life would be so great, you know at this point in life you have a problem with pride. Because humility always looks to seeing the change that I need to do. First, verse 17 says, the world is passing away in all its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. If you're taking notes, write down Daniel 4.37. It's, it's the testimony of the most powerful man in the world at that time, Nebuchadnezzar. And what he says is, God, he is able to humble those who walk in pride. So what's the problem with pride? I want to share with you some problems that come as a result of pride. Number one, pride separates us from God and from his provision capture this. Both uh, James and 1 Peter is going to say the same thing. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So if you're walking in pride, even as a Christian, I want you to understand that God has actually set himself in your path against you. He does not want to bless you because he does not want to bless that pride. So God is going to be standing against you. He's going to be opposing you. But the humble, what does it say? He gives grace to the humble. And the grace there is all of the resources that you need for today. In other words, if you are walking in humility before God, God says, I want to pour out my grace on you today so that everything you need to do today, you will have the resources to do. Secondly, pride puts God against us. Pride separates and sometimes even destroys relationships. See, humility is what brings intimacy. Pride pushes us apart. Pride causes you to make the same mistakes over and over again. Why? Because you don't listen to counsel. Somebody comes and tells you to do something. You say, yeah, he needs to do it or she needs to do it, but I don't need to do that because I'm already doing it because I'm good. Pride blinds you from your faults. This is one of the most interesting things about pride. Pride blinds you from your faults and makes you feel like a victim. See, one of the things about pride, we always think it it comes in the view of confidence and winning people and, oh, he's so full of pride because he's so handsome or strong and all of these things. A lot of people who are caught up with pride are losers. 
and they have no confidence and they have no um, sense of, of power in their lives. They feel totally victimized. Why? Because they've defi- decided to completely depend on themselves, which is the essence of pride. And in depending on themselves, they feel like a loser. They feel victimized. Think of Joshua. Remember the battle of Jericho? God told him, hey, I got a great battle plan for you. I want you to march around the city seven times. And then I want you to blow your trumpets. Joshua's going, good plan, God. That plan made no sense. There is is nothing logical or wise about that plan, except that the power of God is behind it. Does that make sense? See, the only thing that makes that plan work is God. And the only way you find out if that plan works is to trust and obey God, even when you don't understand what he's telling you to do. So, so Joshua approaches Jericho, a much larger and powerful city, in humility, great victory. Then the next time he approaches Ai, he approaches that in pride. He says, oh, we don't even need to send our whole army. We're cool. We got this wired. Let's just send a few thousand guys and let's just mop up this little town. And he gets creamed. Why? Because he was operating in pride and self-sufficiency. Pride forgets what God has done and creates a lack of gratefulness. See, the funny thing about people who are proud, they're generally very sad people. You think, oh, pride, proud people are, you know, winners, they're the guys on the football field, they're guys who are spiking the ball, they're all of the, no, no, no. You get home and you find out that these people are actually miserable. Pride, pride is self-dependent. Now catch this, because of the self-dependence, it creates fear and anxiety. Why? Because you're depending on yourself and you run into situations all the time where the needs of that moment exceed your resources in and of yourself. So what I'm trying to help you to, I want you to despise pride. Now catch this, not in other people's lives. Okay. Don't, don't, dis, don't despise pride in your husband or your wife or your kids or your parents. Despise pride in yourself. Hate it. Let's go on. D.L. Moody said something really cool. He said, God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. You guys, I can't tell you how much it breaks my heart to see Christians living in spiritual poverty. And they're two inches away from spiritual wealth. Just humbling themselves under God's hand. So that God can once again pour out his blessing and his power on their lives. So, question of the morning, is your heart filled with pride? The rightful answer should be, I don't know. And we're going to try to find that out this morning. Our goal is to try to help you see what humility looks like, what pride looks like, so that you can begin to grasp, do I have a problem in this area? So we're at 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to spend the whole morning on three verses, 5 through 7. 
And then if I ever get asked again, we'll go 8 through 11 and look at the part that Satan has in all of this. But first of all, Peter challenges us towards humility, not before God, but with each other. Look at verse 5, and we're going to start with the second part of the verse. Peter says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but he gives great grace to the, to the humble. This is a really colorful verse. The word clothe is, is a word that talks about putting clothes on by fastening. In other words, the idea is putting on some kind of clothing where you need to tie a knot to hold it on. Now, who would wear clothing like that? Servants. In fact, if you want to see a great example of where that is, look at John chapter 13. It says that Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything. So he knew who he was. He knew that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, what you wear when you're with people and you want to look nice. He took that off. And he wrapped a towel around his waist. So what does he do? He ties a knot to hold it on. It's the same thing when it says clothe yourselves, tie a knot around your towel. The the clothing of a servant so that you can hold it on. What did he do? He poured water into a basis and he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. Now, you guys, when we think of foot washing, if you've ever done a foot washing in a church, it's kind of interesting because that is the one Sunday that everybody makes sure that their feet are clean. <laughs> Nobody wants to go and have stinky feet when somebody's washing your feet. So it's, it's a very antiseptic kind of experience. That's not the way it is. And, and what's interesting is when I go to foreign countries, you always have to take your shoes off when you go into houses. It's actually very embarrassing because your feet really stink in hot, humid climates. And you think of Israel. Jesus is getting down to Philip's and, and Bartholomew's and Matthew's stinky feet. And he's washing them. And he's drying them. Do you know why he did that? Because nobody else in the room would. None of the other disciples said, hey, you guys, we don't have a servant here to do foot washing. Oh, okay, I'll do that. Nobody stood up. So Jesus did it. And later on, he said to the guys, do you know what I've done for you? I've given you an example. If I, the Lord, am willing to wash your feet, maybe you guys ought to be willing to wash each other's feet. And he's not talking about physical foot washing at this point, in my view. What he's really talking about is learning how to serve each other. A couple of other scriptures I want to share with you. Uh, Galatians 5, 13 through 14. Here's what Paul says. For you were called to freedom. I love the song that we sang this morning about being free. We are free in Christ. But Paul says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Paul is saying, 
You've been set free. Now I want you to go back into slavery, not a slavery of force, but a slavery of love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love the neighbor, your neighbor as yourself. Jesus in Matthew 20. It's not so among you. Just before that, he was saying how the, the Gentiles love to lord their authority over other people. He says it's different. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever must, would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So what does it mean to clothe yourself in humility? There's a couple of things. I just want to give you some ideas. Number one, it's deciding not to demand your preferences. It's, it's deciding, you know what? I would rather do things this way, and somebody else would rather do things this way. You know what? I'm going to put their interest not to the same level as my interest. I'm going to put their interest ahead of my interest. So I'm not going to push my preferences. If they ask, I'll state them. But if they have a different preference, let's go with yours. Deciding not to demand your rights. Deciding not to say me first. And then intentionally, and here's the key, quietly looking for ways to serve. You see, I'm good at serving. I just want everybody to know when I'm serving. Hey, pouring coffee here. <laughs> Look at me. I'm setting up tables. You guys all watching, by the way? I want to make sure you catch this. Hey, can we put this on YouTube? See, that's what Paul calls a form of godliness, but denying the power of godliness. Humility intentionally looks for ways to serve, but it does it quietly. The next thing of humility is using your possessions and abilities as a resource to meet the needs of others. You know what's interesting about humility? It is exceedingly generous. You know why humility is generous? Because humility is exceedingly grateful for what it has. So humility says, wow, God has blessed me so much. Well, what should I do? I should take the resources that God has blessed me with and I should bless other people. So they're willing to put their time at other people's disposal, their money at other people's disposal, their abilities and gifts, their wisdom and support, all of this stuff. So all of this has to do with verse 5, which is learning to clothe yourself in humility towards each other. You guys, if you want to be a blessing to your family, clothe yourself in humility towards your family. Dads, do you want to be a great dad? Learn to be the servant of all. Mom, do you want to be a, an amazing mom that kids look back and say, wow, be a servant. Don't demand respect. In fact, don't ask for respect. Don't expect respect. You seek to be the one who grants honor to other people. You seek to be the one who encourages and builds up and lifts up other people. Now he goes to our humility towards God, verse 6. He says, therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he 
may exalt, that he may lift you up at the proper time. It's interesting that both James and 1 Peter talk about humbling yourself under God's mighty hand. Why does Peter specify that? Why does James bring that out? Here's the reason. In the Old Testament, whenever it talked about God's mighty hand, it was focused on God bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt. Now, now think about what was going on. They were against a foe that was so far superior militarily, economically, in every way to them that it was a ridiculous fight. The only way it worked, again, was the power of God. And so for people to have humility and say, God, I'm not going to do this in my strength. I'm going to use your strength. You must be convinced that God is able. So Peter says, humble yourself under God's mighty hand. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you're struggling with, no matter how hopeless it seems, hey, God's hand is mighty. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up. How do you do that? I want to give you some ideas on how do we actually humble ourselves under God's hand. Humility begins with a personal and constant declaration that God's ways are higher than and superior to your ways. Okay, so this, this is the, the starting point of humility when you, when you finally acknowledge God might just be a little smarter than you. He might just be a little wiser than you. His, my, his ways, even though often they don't make sense to us, might just be better. Let me give you an example. Let's say your wife that's been hurt by your husband and you know, you're struggling with forgiveness and you don't want to forgive because you say, well, it will just set me up to be hurt again or it will help him feel like it wasn't a big deal. And so you don't forgive because of your thinking. Can you say pride with me? Now, you see, that woman doesn't feel proud. She feels broken and hurt and wounded. And it almost sounds mean to label that as pride. But that's exactly what it is because fundamentally what she's saying is my ways are better than God's ways. And when you start putting things on that level, you go, oh, I don't want to say that. None of us want to say that. The problem is we just live that way. So Isaiah 55, 8, 9, I love this. It says, for my ways are not your thoughts, or for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is saying, the way I think is not even remotely related to the way you think. What does that mean? Little thing I've learned a long time ago, don't worry about understanding why God commands you to do something. Just obey. Stop asking, why did God tell me to do this? Or I don't like that God told me to do this. And start saying, God told me to do this, so I'm going to obey. That is the action of humility. So the second thing, humility is a intentional reliance on God 
rather than your own strength or others. It's real fun if you do a quick reading of the history of Israel. So that would be Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, and 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Samuel, all of those guys. I know I'm not doing it in one order. All right, give me a break. Uh, If you look at all of those things, you'll find something very interesting. The battles that Israel won and lost had nothing to do with the relative strength of the armies. Okay? It never had anything to do with, on a human level, who should win. It had everything to do with, was Israel trusting God at that point in time? So God calls Gideon. says, I'd like you to beat up 10,000 Midianites. Gideon wants to get the biggest army he can find. Gets them all together. They're still outnumbered, by the way. And God says, ah, too many. Let's pare this down. So he finally pairs it down to 300 guys armed with pots and a torch inside the pot. God says, perfect. You know, wouldn't you love, I mean, it, it would be a great sitcom to have guys talking to God at these moments in time. All right, getting your right, your, it's right where I went. You got 300 guys. Okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to run down the hill, blow a trumpet, and break the pot so that your torches, everybody can see your torches. Oh, okay. And, and then what? Oh, don't worry about anything after that. It's all taken care of. Just do that. Okay. But Gideon did it. Why? Because he had already chosen to rely on God rather than his own strength. And it's interesting, there's a, a scripture in Isaiah where Isaiah says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. When you see Egypt, read the world. Because so often when we run into a problem, do you notice that the world has an alternative for God in every area of your life? You out of money? Get a loan. You maxed out all your credit cards? I got a great idea. Let's go borrow more money by attaching our house to a loan, and then we'll pay off our credit cards. Hey, I I love these ads. It's your money. No, No, it's not. You're borrowing more money. Your bar if if it was your money, you wouldn't have to borrow it, right? And to the world, this stuff makes sense. Why do people do that? Because whatever they do, they don't want to rely on God. So Isaiah says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are strong, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. God's great frustration with Israel. This is why he got so angry at David for numbering the troops. David's decision to number the troops was a complete decision of pride. I need to know how we stack up against other armies. Let's go on. Humbling yourself looks like unquestioned obedience. And again, we talked about Joshua uh, at Jericho. God told him to do something. Joshua does it. Does exactly what God tells him to do, and they have this amazing victory. Gideon, 
does exactly what God tells them to do, and they have this amazing victory. Jesus, at the night that he was going to the cross, he was saying, Father, boy, if it's okay, I'd just as soon have this cut pass. But then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Guys, this is what humility looks like. When God gives you a command, you obey it. You don't question it. You don't try to figure it out. You don't try to understand it. You just do it. Because of the starting assumption that God's ways are higher than your ways. Life gets a lot simpler when you walk out this morning and you have predecided whatever God says I'm going to do. See, the nature, what, what James calls a double-minded man, that's a man who asks God for wisdom, but they haven't decided whether they're going to be obedient to the wisdom that God gives them. That's what a double-minded man is. And James says, let not that person expect to receive anything from the Lord. See, if we haven't predecided for obedience, we're not going to receive anything from the Lord. Then finally, in verse 7, now, I want you to capture this connection. In verse 6, he says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Now, verse 7 says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, the casting is a participle, which means it is a verb that looks back to another verb for its context. Here's the point. The main command of the passage is humble yourself under God's mighty hand. Casting your cares on him is the way you know that you're doing that. How do you want to know? You want to know if you're humble? Are you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you? Now, let's talk about that. The word casting, I I always thought it meant kind of throwing, you know. You know, just chucking those things towards Jesus like a big rock, you know, It's not that at all. In fact, the same verb is used to describe the four men who were lowering the paralytic at the feet of Jesus. It's not throwing. It's actually carefully placing. And so what you do when you finally decide to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God is you bring your anxieties to the feet of Jesus and you kneel down before him, and you lay them at his feet. Here's the amazing thing. What do you think the result of humility that leads you to cast your anxieties on him will be? It will be peace. Because one of the great blessings of humility is a peace that passes understanding a peace that doesn't make any sense. And so as we go on, Psalm 55, 22 kind of jumps on board with, uh, with uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. It says, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. And I love this. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Now, circumstances may go to heck, But when you're casting your burden on the Lord and he's sustaining you, you will not be shaken. What are the blessings of humility? 
Number one, humility leads to greater strength. 2 Timothy 2, 1, Paul says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, when you make the decision to rely on God's strength, you're going to have greater strength at your disposal. Humility brings not a self-confidence, but a God-confidence. I love what Paul says. He actually, you might think Paul had a poor self-image. He starts off this verse by saying, not that we are adequate in ourselves, as thinking anything as coming from ourselves. Wow, Paul, you're kind of down on yourself. Then he goes on to say, but our adequacy is from God. So apart from God, Paul felt completely 100% inadequate, but with God, he felt 100% completely adequate. Third, God lifts up the humble. Now, here's the crazy thing. Humility actually is what leads you to significance and influence. See, in the kingdom of God, Jesus says, do you want to be great in God's kingdom? Learn to be the servant of all. Learn how to lay aside your rights and begin to meet the needs and interests of others. Philippians 2, 1 through 4 tells us that humility leads to intimacy and, and unity. In fact, that humility is the fundamental pathway to intimacy and to unity. And finally, humility brings peace. If you're taking notes, write down Isaiah 26, 3. This promise, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So bottom line, this is an exceedingly simple message. Pride bad, humility good. All right? What I want you to realize, pride equals insanity. Pride is insanity. Why do I say that? Paul wrote to the Corinthian Christians, verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 4. He says, for who sees anything different in you? Now, listen to this question. What do you have that you did not receive? Hmm. What's the answer to that question? What do you have that you did not receive? Absolutely nothing. Right? Then Paul goes on to say, and if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You know, the ultimate ridiculous picture of pride is, is an acne-filled 16-year-old who has a Mustang. He's got the big headers, blah, 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 blah. He's driving down the street. This kid feels like he's something. Why? Because his mommy and daddy gave him a car. And that's what pride is like. Everything we have has come from the Lord, right? And yet so many of us feel superior to other people because of what God has given us and what he hasn't given them. If anything, that should drive us to greater humility. So what I want you to see is that humility is simply seeing the reality of life. So how do you deal with pride? Or how do you grow in humility? I guess it'd be kind of the same thing. Number one, I'd like you to do something courageous. I'd like you to ask your close friends and family for feedback. Now, you may need to put on handcuffs or put a gag in your mouth or something 
where they can see that you're serious, that they can speak freely in safety. Because so often when we ask for feedback, we don't really want feedback, we want praise. Determine not to be defensive, pride, or counterattack, pride. And focus instead on taking copious notes on what people are saying to you. Secondly, just kind of observe yourself this week. Do you talk more or do you listen more? See, I never thought of that for a long time. I talked more because I thought everybody was interested in what I said. And I never listened because I wasn't interested in what they were saying. So it just, it was a win-win, I thought. But I read something that just actually was like an arrow to the heart. And this guy said, most people, when they talk about the person who's influenced them the most, talk about people who listen to them. People who demonstrated respect for them by actually hearing what they had to say. So this is a great thing to just take note of this week. Do I tend to talk more or do I tend to listen more? Every day, learn to specifically commit every area of your life to the Lord. Demonstrate your need to Jesus on a day-by-day basis. Learn when you're talking with people to stop, start with questions rather than statements. Because it invites them to speak into your life rather than you starting off by speaking into their life. The other thing that is really helpful for me is to journal of the things you have because of God and his blessing in your life and learn to express that to him and to other people in the form of thanksgiving. And this week, if you're married, if you've got a family, you begin a journey of trying to discover what you can do to serve your husband, your wife, your parents, your kids, anywhere. I'll tell you guys, what you'll discover is when you stop focusing on yourself so much, you're actually a lot happier. You're actually a lot happier. Finally, this week I'm praying that God is going to reveal your pride to you. Even this week, as I was focusing on the stuff that was going on in my life and was studying this passage, God was revealing areas where my pride wants to come up and take control. Confess it. Not just to God, but to others. Confess it to your husband. Confess it to your wife. I've been acting in pride towards you, and I, I... I want to repent from that. And that's the next thing is to repent, which means to change the direction of your life. And then just while you're building the habit on a day-by-day basis, 
learn to commit to live in humility towards God and towards the people around you. You guys, in one sense, this sounds like a negative message because I'm trying to point out bad things in you. But it's actually the most positive breakthrough that you can have to be able to see the pride in your life and to say, God, I really want to walk in humility before you. And I want to clothe myself. I want to put on that servant's towel and I want to walk in humility towards those around me.